Leviticus 25 closes with the Lord reminding the people of an idea central to literally everything he's discussed in the book of Leviticus. God declares, Leviticus 25, verse 55, The children of Israel are servants to me. They are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Seven times in Leviticus, God takes a moment to remind the children of Israel that He was the one who liberated them from Egypt and freed them from their bondage. Seven times. For 400 years, they had been held captive and forced into the servitude of Pharaoh. Not only was their prospects of of liberation slim, but the Egyptians had grown brutal in their mistreatment. Most incredibly, when virtually all hope was lost, and their future the bleakest. 400 years is a long time. Out of nowhere, God steps through the divide, raises up a man named Moses, and miraculously delivers the Hebrew people. Now what's important about this divine intervention? And why God feels the need to remind them of the fact he was the one who had freed them from Egypt on seven occasions throughout Leviticus was a point you shouldn't overlook. Yes, God had freed them from their bondage, freed them from their slavery, freed them from Egypt, but he had freed them for a purpose. You see, God liberated the Israelites from serving Pharaoh in Egypt. Why? So that they as his people, might serve him in Canaan. In fact, as God is wrapping up the subject matter of chapter 25, dealing with slavery, on two separate occasions, he refers to the Hebrew people as being my servants, or literally, you're my slaves. You know, if we look at this story as an illustration of of larger realities, bigger spiritual principles, we'll see that God has also freed you and I from this world, Egypt, and the bondage of sin, something we could never free ourselves from, (laughs) for the exact same reason. In 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9, Paul will actually describe the Christian's conversion as, quote, turning from idols to serve the living and true God. I noted last Sunday, the great myth of our day is that somehow we live in the land of the free. (laughs) My friend, at best, that's nothing but a mirage. For you're only really free to choose who or what you'll end up serving. In one of his lesser-known albums titled Slow Train Coming, Bob Dylan, the great American poet, he sang the following. He's saying, you might be a rock and roll addict prancing on the stage. You might have drugs at your command, women in a cage. You might be a businessman or some high degree thief. They may call you doctor or they may call you chief. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. One of the most common perversions of the blessed doctrine of grace is that Christ's work on the cross, liberating us from sin, subsequently then removes us from any and all personal expectations. As if Christ set us free so that we can now do whatever we want. 
Years ago in our Galatians series, I referred to this as the grace comma, so I can do anything, gospel distortion. While it's true, grace is extended free, free of all obligations. It is unmerited favor. The twisted assumption is that grace is also void, naturally, of any attachments or subsequent expectations. Yes, grace declares the glorious truth that Jesus Christ has liberated you and I from sin, but grace then also explains how that liberation in turn attaches you to Christ, to Jesus. You see, grace provides you a relationship with God you could have never had on your own within the logical understanding that that new attachment to Christ Jesus as his servant naturally over time manifests in real tangible changes in your life. Writing on this very subject in Romans 6, Paul writes, beginning with verse 15, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. But you know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, <clears throat> you became slaves of righteousness. Interesting, slaves of righteousness. For just as you presented yourselves as slaves of uncleanness, formerly, so now you presently present yourselves as slaves of of righteousness for holiness. Having been set free from sin and become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and in the end everlasting life. And then Paul sums it up by saying, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. This idea that grace frees us from sin so that we can serve Jesus in the exact same way that God liberated the Hebrews from Egypt so that they could become his servants in the promised land, this idea, well, it really sets the stage for the subject matter that God will now address in Leviticus 26. Beginning with verse 1. God speaking to Moses. You shall not make idols for yourselves, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar you rear up for yourselves. Nor shall you set up engraved stones in your own land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. In the original language, what God is saying kind of takes on a whole different level of meaning than the way our English translation affords. Like not only does God describe idols as being man-made substitutes that we rear or set up for ourselves in order to bow down to worship, in the place, by the way, of the living God. Things Paul references, I mean, Paul, Moses references here, things like, like carved images, sacred pillars, or engraved stones. But God then defines an idol, interestingly, in the Hebrew language, as literally a nothing. That, that's what the word idol means in this passage. Verse 1, you could actually translate, you shall not make good-for-nothings. For yourselves. In ancient times, idols were the physical representation of the various gods who controlled the world. I mean, think about how much of the natural order of life 
way back then, was really left a mystery. A, a head-scratcher. Unexplainable. Like, why did the sun rise and then set? Why did it provide heat? The rain. Mysterious. Yes, they probably knew how babies were conceived, but how did they develop? How did we reach that, that, that point of life? It was always a mystery in the ancient world as to the seasons and their natural changes. How plants and crops would grow out of the earth. You put a little seed and over time you get a plant that then yields more of a harvest. I mean, really, apart from God, think of it this way. Apart from God, apart from the divine, explain to me how a cow is able to consume grass and produce steak. It's a miracle. It's amazing. In goes grass, out comes steak. I love it. Now, because it was assumed that some god controlled each of these mysterious components to life, <clears throat> pagan cultures then created physical idols to represent each of these deities, really giving way to polytheism and, and mythology. In addition to this, they would construct high places or temples where they could worship in order to maintain the, the good favor of that god. Or in more extreme instances, these temples or high places would be uh, locations where they could make sacrifices in the attempts of appeasing some kind of divine judgment they were experiencing. Aside from calling such practices as being nothings, empty, worthless, and in light of the fact that the Israelites were His servants and He their God, it makes sense why the chapter here, this chapter, begins with relational language. Idols. In a sense, it's as though God begins by saying, you're my people, you're my servants, I'm your God, we have this beautiful relationship, just don't cheat on me. <laughs> I freed you from Egypt. I've demonstrated supernatural power over the world. I've made you mine. I promise to protect, to provide. There's no need for you to make these silly little idols to appease gods that don't even exist. Aside from the prohibition of idolatry, God also here encourages them to keep His Sabbaths. And notice it's plural. In the Hebrew, this word keep can be translated as to watch over, to protect, to celebrate. In the end, the Sabbath day, the Sabbath year, the year of Jubilee, it was all about the people experiencing what? The blessings of their relationship with God. A relationship based on grace. You see, in contrary to idolatry, which sought to appease the gods, these Sabbaths were all about responding to the favor that God had already demonstrated. You don't have to earn anything. I've given it to you. Enjoy it. Recognize it. You know, in the ancient world at this time, such an idea or even a concept of God was revolutionary and groundbreaking. Aside from idolatry and keeping the Sabbath, Finally, this relational language also includes the exhortation. They reverence his sanctuary. In addition to remaining faithful, the, rejecting idols, and enjoying his blessings, keeping the Sabbath, as the place of sacrifice and worship, the place of their relationship, it was important to God this place of meeting be held in high esteem. 
Verse 3. If you walk in my statutes, and that, that word walk, it implies to live by them. And, and you keep my commandments, or you guard them, and perform them, or you're affected by them. Then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce. The trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage. And the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. One of the interesting components to not just Leviticus 16, but uh, 26, but also 27, is the conditional language that God will use throughout these final two chapters. Over and over again, you will see in these chapters, God explaining and promising the children of Israel, if you do this, then I will do that. Over and over and over again. If you, then I. As God is concluding a book filled with 25 chapters of statutes and commandments, aimed at structuring the way His people were to interact with Him and treat one another in contrast to the world around them, God makes it abundantly clear. In verse 3, If you walk according to My statutes and keep My commandments, you're going to experience some incredible blessings as My servants. But then we'll see in verse 14, God will say, If you do not obey me and you despise my statutes, well, there will be serious consequences. Back to grace. Grace is by definition the unmerited favor of God being demonstrated to man independent of man's performance. Such an awesome reality naturally motivates within a person what? Well, a desire to obey God according to His Word. In the framework of of you and I being servants, this framework of servanthood, our obedience or our disobedience is not excluded. In fact, our obedience or disobedience is important because it indicates whether or not you and I are actually abiding, walking in the grace of God. Because disobedience is the logical evidence a person has departed from that relationship, in such a dynamic, God will allow natural consequences and then in more extreme situations, divine judgment into a person's life, not to destroy them, but to bring them back to their relationship with Him and that basis of unmerited favor, grace. You know, in in the presence of a person's failure, often an accusation will be made. Someone will say, that person took grace too far. But you know, such an accusation reveals a misunderstanding of grace. You see, grace never, ever leads a person into sin. Not once has it ever. You see, in the place of failure, it wasn't grace. It wasn't them taking grace too far that led them into sin. In actuality, it was the fact that they had failed to take grace far enough. As we work our way through what will really be a raw and piercing chapter, please keep this in mind. As a servant, as a servant of God, the blessing of obedience, the blessings of obeying God, 
are just the things that naturally manifest in your life as you walk with God. It's not any more complicated than that. But on the flip side, the results of disobedience are also natural. You see, they're the natural consequences that will occur in your life if you've ceased walking with God. Back in verse 4, the first thing that we actually see yielded in a person's life as they're walking with God, look at it again, it's fruitfulness. God says, I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Please know, godliness only manifests in your life as you're walking with God. Godliness manifests in no other way. Now what's interesting about this verse, aside from the obvious, is that in addition to that walk with God naturally producing fruit and produce as a response, naturally, organically, God himself takes the responsibility to provide the conditions necessary for fruitfulness. He says that he'll provide rain, but notice, in its season. My exhortation for you is fruit always comes in its season. It's not something you can conjure up. It's not something you can manufacture. It's not something you can do on your own. You can't make fruit appear. They're the fruit of the Spirit, something that happens naturally as you're walking with God in the Spirit of God. But if you're looking at your life and you're not seeing things happen as fast as you would like them, you're not seeing all this fruit as quickly as you would want, pump the brakes, calm. God yields rain that will produce fruit in its season. Verse 6, I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie, de- shall lie down, and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of beasts, and the sword will not go through your land. Now the second thing, we, we see yielded as we walk with God, aside from fruitfulness, is, well, peace. In fact, it's a peace of supernatural origin. Look again at the verse. Verse 6 describes a peace that originates where? In you? In this world? No, 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 no. It's something that God gives. It's supernatural. It's otherworldly. In Philippians 4, verse 7, Paul will write how this spirit-driven peace is so incredible, it surpasses all understanding. You know, we're presently living in a crisis of proportions no one could have ever imagined this past New Year's. The coronavirus, the closing of schools, the, the tanking of the economy. I mean, we live in panic. Quarantines. And yet, as Christians, we should have a peace. In fact, we should have a peace in the midst of this storm so out of this world. It's foreign. Where people have to know, people have to ask. Why aren't you freaking out? Well, I know where I'm going. I'm just a sojourner, man. I'm just passing through. I got no reason to be rattled. Yeah, things look like they're out of control. But you know what I know? My God is still very much in control. And He'll take care of our needs. You see, what we need to demonstrate 
as the evidence of God working in our lives is an out-of-this-world kind of peace, which, according to this verse, results in rest. You shall lie down. As well as it's a peace that chases away fear. Verse 7. You will chase your enemies. They shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred. And a hundred of you shall chase, shall put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. The third thing yielded in our lives as we're walking with God as the servants of God is victory. You know, in the Old Testament, these two verses, we see a lot of practical illustrations of these verses being accomplished. You know, dynamics where you go out to fight an enemy against insurmountable odds, like kind of ridiculous odds, like you have no business going against that enemy, you're going to get slaughtered. Naturally speaking, you're outmatched, you're not prepared, they have more resources, you're weak. Uh, Stories come to mind. Like Samson, going out with a jawbone of a donkey, slaughtering Philistines. Or Jonathan and his armor bearer. 1 Samuel 14, going out and taking on the Philistines. Judges 7, we have recorded the tale of Gideon. How God used 300 misfits to overtake a mighty Midianite army. In our lives, a similar dynamic exists. Now, we don't have a physical warfare, but we have a spiritual one. In fact, in discussing our engagement in this spiritual war, we read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57, thanks be to God who, note this, gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a victory that that we achieve on our own or, or a victory we get because we were good. No, this is something God gives. Same thing as the peace. It's given. <laughs> After describing, interestingly enough, how we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle, our battle is against principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age. That's ominous. Against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. In Ephesians 6, verse 1, Paul encourages all of us. He says, be strong. Where? Not in oneself, but in the Lord. And in the power of his might. Verse 9. For I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful. Multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat the old harvest. And then clear out the old because of the new. I will set my tabernacle among you. And my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God. And you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Again, repeating this, that you should not be their slaves. For I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. The fourth thing that's yielded in our lives as the servants of God, as we walk with God, is holiness. Notice again, God promises to make you, his servants, fruitful, multiply you, and confirm his covenant. But this is something God does. He makes us. He made you walk upright. You know, when you think about holiness, and and holiness, let's be real, it's it's one of those Christianese terms, not often used in the real world, but you find in church, holiness, 
common, but very infrequent that you'll hear it defined. When you think about holiness, think about it this way. I think this is a great illustration. Consider holiness a forward motion with a clear destination. Because you're walking with God. In fact, God says that I have broken the bands of your yoke, or I've liberated you from sin, to make you walk upright. It's a forward motion with a clear destination. Jesus kind of builds on this idea in Matthew 6, verse 33, when he says, hey, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first his righteousness. And then everything else eventually takes care of itself. Holiness. Holiness is the natural result of a person in the pursuit of God. And what's amazing about this pursuit is not only does God make us walk uprightly, so He helps us along the journey, but He's also clear we'll never have to walk alone, for He's with us. Now, before our text takes a hard right, which it's about to, I I just want to quickly recap. The blessing of obedience... As servants of God, as we're walking with God, the things that naturally manifest, there are four of them. Practically, they're fruitfulness, a divine peace, victory, and holiness. Now, the daunting thing about this, if you do this, I will do that dynamic, is that a failure to walk with God will also result in natural and serious consequences. In the rest of the chapter, God will issue a series of very serious warnings to the Israelites. And it stands to reason that because this chapter ends largely being prophetic, predictive, from the perspective of Ezra and a post-Babylonian group of exiles, I believe these verses have a very interesting application. But we'll get to that in a moment. Verse 14, but, so we've had some good stuff. If you obey my commandments, fruitfulness, peace, victory, holiness. But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes or you reject them, or if your soul abhors my judgments or or you show aversion to them, So that you don't perform them or you're not affected by them at all. But you break my covenant. I will do this to you. First, I will appoint terror over you. Wasting disease and fever. Which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain. For your enemies shall not eat it. There's a lot here. First, God's saying that a failure to walk with him would result in terror. It's an interesting word. You know, in contrast to the supernatural peace that casts out fear in addition to providing rest, you know, what results from obedience, it's simply a truth that when we depart from our walk with God, (laughs) trouble always results. This word terror can be translated literally as, as trouble. In another way, it can also be translated as to panic or to have like this uncontrollable sudden sense of fear or anxiety. (laughs) Let me bring this home. Have you ever been doing something you know you shouldn't have been doing? 
and then something happens where you get a little, you get tipped off that maybe you've been caught. What happens immediately? <laughs> this sense of panic, of fear. That's what, this is, that's what this is describing. You see, when we're not walking with God, as His servants, there's trouble. Trouble, trouble, trouble. Secondly, God says a failure to walk with Him results in a sickness. He defines this sickness as wasting disease. And a fever which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of the heart. <laughs> Using a little creative license, I must say, I know a lot of people who are not walking with God, suffering from wasting disease. You know, more often than not, something or someone slides in, becomes an idol. They substitute for, for Jesus. Their walk ceases. And you know their time? <laughs> their time just starts wasting away wasting disease their life's a waste and sadly what results from the wasted life wasting time is an infection an infection that will blur one's ability to see their vision and will weigh very deeply on their own heart thirdly god says a failure to walk with him will result in vanity look again God says, you sow your seed in vain. Why? Because <clears throat> after you sow it, your enemies are the, one that, the ones that eat it. You know, I found that there's one thing in this world, in this world worse than being unproductive. And, and by the way, being unproductive, I hate it. I hate wasting disease. I, I want to feel like everything counts. But the one thing worse than being unproductive... <laughs> is working really, really hard to produce something you then conclude's worthless or pointless. I put all of that time, energy, and effort, and this is stupid. There's a biblical character that, in fact, writes a whole book about this. His name was King Solomon. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, trying to find meaning and purpose in this life under the sun, removing God from the human equation, <laughs> he opens the whole narrative. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. This is all vain. Or breath. <sighs> Worthless. Verse 17, I will set my face against you, the Lord says, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule, shall reign over you, and you shall flee, even when no one pursues you. This is pretty obvious, but fourth, a failure to walk with God often just results in a defeatism. Defeat. Again, Jesus wants to provide us victory, a victory we can only have as we walk with Him, as we abide in Him, as we experience His strength and His power. But when we depart from that, disobedience, well, it always ends in defeat. Now to recap, <coughs> walking with God results in fruitfulness, divine peace, victory, and holiness. A failure to walk with God results in anxiety and fear. That's no good. A wasting of one's life, 
Activity with no motion, vanity, defeat. You choose obedience or disobedience. Now, building off of what results naturally from a disobedience, God's going to begin to turn towards the greater consequences. He says, after this, if you do not obey me, <laughs> so after you experience fear and anxiety, after you sense this wastingness, the vanity, the defeat, if, if even after that, these natural consequences, you don't obey me, then I will punish you. So now we're getting into like the divine intervention, divine judgment. I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will break the pride of your power. So God's saying, I'm going to humble you, man. And I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. There's going to be no rain and the soil is going to be hard, untillable. Your strength, God says, will be spent in vain for your land will not yield its produce nor the trees of the land yield their fruit. <laughs> you know, if you examine the history of Israel, you'll notice how often, how frequently, God uses famine as a tool of rebuke whenever the children of Israel fell into idolatry, when they made the decision to disobey God and go into rebellion. And that makes sense. If, if fruitfulness, physically, like if the actual fruit of the earth was this grand picture of spiritual health and vitality, well, subsequently, barrenness was the same type of warning they had gone astray. Again, warning shots to stop. About face, repent. Verse 21, then, if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, so your, your rebellion here, you don't get the famine thing, you're just getting hardened into it, I will bring on you seven times more plagues, according to your sins. So the consequences here are now getting more exponential. I will send wild beasts among you, says the Lord, which will rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, make you few in number, your highway shall be desolate. That sounds terrible. Verse 23, and if by those things you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me. So this is getting worse. Then I will walk contrary to you, and I will punish you yet seven times more for your sins. I will bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant. When you are gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you. You shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I have cut off your supply of bread, ten women shall bake bread in one oven. They shall bring back your bread by weight. You shall eat but not be satisfied. Basically, you're going to have women that are cooking. Ten women, but only in one oven. So you're going to have a tenth of the bread, and you won't be satisfied. This is kind of an allusion to rationing, something that happens when an invading army comes in, when you have to hunker down. And, and, and again, when we're, you know, some of, some of this gets very prophetic, predictive. Because when you look at the Jewish people in their time in the land of promise, when famine didn't work and they get hardened into their rebellion and disobedience, they would go through these cycles of judgment whereby God would use the surrounding nations to conquer them. People groups like the Philistines, or the Midianites, the Moabites, the Ammonites. All this being recorded for us in a, in a book known as Judges. 
in the end, the ten northern tribes of Israel, wicked, rebellious, they would be destroyed and conquered, judged by God, by the mighty Assyrian Empire. Then 200 or so years later, a similar fate would befall the southern kingdom by Babylon. And during the siege, what would be normal to have debilitating pestilence and the rationing of food, just like God predicted. Verse 27, And after all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, that I will walk contrary to you. Now, he said that before, but he adds, in fury, in fuego. And I, even I, will chasten you seven times more for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. Now, during the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem, the prophet Jeremiah Documents in Lamentations 2, verse 20, that the conditions in the city had deteriorated so much that the people had to resort to this very scenario, cannibalism. God says, I will destroy these high places where they were offering sacrifices and worshiping idols. I'll cut down your incense altars and cast, I'll cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. God's not messing around, is he? Verse 31, I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation. I will not smell the fragrance, the fragrance of your sweet aroma. So he's predicting the destruction of these meeting places, the temple, tabernacle, place of meeting. I will bring the land to desolation. Your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbath as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. And it's worth pointing out that one of the unique strategies of the Babylonian Empire was that when they conquered a group of people, they would remove that group from their land and disperse them to other parts of the empire. They believed that removing people from their land, placing them into different societies, would ultimately instill or create like a, just this, this different culture. It would, it would erode their sense of national pride, their, their identity. Basically, the, the intention was that over time, a few generations, everyone would now just be Babylonian. According to this passage, God says his judgment would result in what? Well, exactly what the Babylonians did. It would result in a, quote, scattering of them among the nations. With then their enemies dwelling in their land and their place. For when the Jews were removed, other groups of people were brought in. Also notice that God seems to infer in these verses as to the specific reason, like what would happen to cause such a judgment? He says that he would remove them from the land. Why? So that, quote, the land could enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land. I mean, <clears throat> how crazy is it to think that even with such a very specific warning, for 490 years, the children of Israel would still refuse to obey the Sabbath year. 
he points to it. He tells them why these things would happen. Verse 35, as long as it lies desolate, the land, it shall rest. For the time that it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. Ezra will note at the end of 2 Chronicles that this would total 70 years. 490 years, they didn't obey the Sabbath year, so for 70 years God removed them. For the time, it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt there. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts and the lands of their enemies. The sound of a shaken leaf shall cause them to flee. They shall flee as though fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall when no one pursues. They shall stumble over one another as if before a sword when no one pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. You shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall waste away in their iniquities. And your enemies' lands, also in the the Father's iniquities, which are with them, they shall waste away. (laughs) Admittedly, we can say that this is a somber, sober passage of Scripture. Verse 40, but... And I love that. Again, we now have another but, so another transition. If they confess their iniquity. Confess the iniquity of their father. So he's speaking, the Lord, to a generation that had experienced these particular extreme judgments. He says, if they confess their iniquity with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, that they may that they had also walked contrary to me, that I walked contrary to them, that I brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then, so if they do these things, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham. I will remember, I will remember the land. This word remember doesn't mean God had forgotten. It just means to bring to, to, to mind, to recall. The land shall be left empty by them. And will enjoy its Sabbaths when it lies desolate without them. They will accept their guilt because they despise my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. You know, what's fascinating about this passage is that in spite of everything that has just happened, you know, God, God's saying, obey me, and man, there's incredible blessings. You disobey me, man, there's some natural results that aren't cool. And they're designed to bring it back to me. But if they don't work, well, then there's some more judgments. And if those don't work, there's some more judgments. If those don't work, there's some more judgments. Like, it's exponential, and it increases proportionate to their rebellion, the the hardness of their heart. But even when they've gotten to the very end of the thing, where God has literally said, "I I abhor you. And he has them stripped from the land and kicked out. In spite of all of that. But if... Then, you see, God here is laying out a path forward for the group of people that had experienced this particular judgment. God would remember his covenant with Jacob, with Isaac, with Abraham, as well as with the land if, what? Look back. If they confessed their iniquity and the iniquity of their father. So, So they have to first own their own fault own their own depravity. They also have to own their unfaithfulness. This word unfaithful, it's 
literally treacherous acts. They had to own how they had walked contrary to God, in opposition to Him. God says, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled, a humbling, a humbling of oneself, and they accept their guilt, God, we despised your judgments. We abhorred your statutes. We did this. We're wrong. Let's finish out the text. This is so cool. Verse 44. Yet for all of that, when they, are in the, when, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away. Nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. Really weird language, isn't it? These are the statutes and the judgments and the laws which the Lord made between Himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. Now frankly, what we have here, I think, is one of the the most incredible few verses in the entire book, not just of Leviticus, but the Old Testament. Again, keep in mind, speaking from Sinai, God is speaking from Sinai, after freeing the Jews from the, their Egyptian captivity, he's also taken 25 chapters, speaking from the tabernacle in Leviticus, to form and structure them into a holy nation, right? So all of that's just, ha- just happened. We're three weeks into this. God tells him, if you obey these things, man, I'm going to eat blessings on you. But God then goes one step beyond just issuing a warning for the consequences of their potential disobedience. Like it would seem in the final few verses here that God actually goes ahead and he tells the Israelites before they had ever reached the promised land that the day would come when their disobedience would be so intolerable that God would use an invading army to destroy the tabernacle, their place of meeting, to rip them from the land and carry them into exile. <laughs> I mean, think about that. God is telling them up front. before He frees them from Egypt. He brings them to Sinai. We're going to a land of promise. You're just not going to be there as long as you think because you're morons. Up front, here's these instructions. If you obey them, And walk with me, so much blessing, but you're not going to. And so I'm just going to destroy you. That's going to happen. And yet, also notice, after God provides the group of, of Hebrews that experience this, this group of exiles, a blueprint for their way back, right? A blueprint based on what? Confession. Confession of sin. The acceptance of guilt. Humility? And verse 44, God then says, Yet for all of that, when they are in the land of their enemies, Babylon, I promise to work in their midst, remembering the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. The people he's actually talking to. Aside from this section, almost feeling as though God is speaking from the future, Back in time to Moses? There is no question, and I love this. Man, this hits me in a cool way. 
But there's no question that God is promising. Even when everything gets terrible, even when the judgment is horrible, even when they hit rock bottom, that God would extend grace to the exile. Like the application for you and I, as we look at this chapter, servants of Jesus, like the application in all of this, um, it, it's rather simple. I mean, <laughs> obey God. Like it beats the alternative, let's be real. Like fruitfulness, peace, victory, holiness, such a preferable life than one that's filled with anxieties and pointlessness and vanity and defeat. But God is so serious when it comes to walking with Him. And don't miss it. He will use either the natural consequences of sin or He'll use in more extreme situations an act of divine judgment in our lives if we're in disobedience, walking contrary to Him, not to destroy us, but to bring us back into His grace. You know, in, in our in our world, we have a lot of things backwards. This is, this is another one. You see, never forget a loving God cares much more about your eternal state than your present comforts. It's a shame that we care, I think, more about our present comforts than our eternal state. And yet, how amazing a truth <laughs> that even when we rebel, even when we walk contrary to God, even when we find ourselves in a situation of our own making, experiencing His judgment, <laughs> we haven't escaped grace, for there is grace in exile. You know, many years after Leviticus was written, <laughs> just as God had predicted, there would be a group of Hebrew men who would find themselves living, quote, in the land of their enemies. And I think based upon what God says here in Leviticus 26, this same group of men in exile, well, they choose to confess not just their sins, but the sins of their fathers. This group of men, they were willing to accept the justice of God's judgment. There was a group of men that humbled themselves and while serving in the palace of King Nebuchadnezzar, they remembered something vitally important. <laughs> they were still servants of the Most High God. For these men, God's grace would meet them exactly where they were and His covenant with them would be reassured. God would speak extensively to Daniel. And imagine, if you're a Hebrew man, and Jerusalem has been flattened, the temple destroyed, everything you knew and loved ruined. You've been stripped from the land that God gave you and your father and your grandfather and your great-grandfather, all these, these generations, you had all this promise, all this heritage, all this legacy, and you've been ripped from it, stripped from it, taken into exile, you're a thousand miles away. You'd be sitting there thinking, man, we so blew it. God has to be done with us. I mean, really, could you blame him? Have you ever been in that situation? 
Were you so blew it, so messed up, so stepped in it that you're like, man, I, I know God is a God of love, but I think I probably went too far. I don't know if I can come back from this. You see, God comes to Daniel, who's experiencing these very questions. Have we blown it? And he comes with a message that no. Well, yes, you've blown it, but no, I'm not done. I still have a plan. I still have a vision for Israel. I'm not done with Israel. I'll bring them back. But you know, aside from that, even in the place of judgment, God would end up using these men, Daniel, his three amigos, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He would use them as his servants in a foreign land to shine his light into the lives of some of the most powerful people who have ever lived. These men would truly make an impact. And you know what? They would experience fruitfulness. They would experience peace. They would experience victory. Oh, read the book of Daniel. They would be holy men, refusing to eat the king's meat. Yes, they were in exile, but they would return to obedience. Yes, they were experiencing judgment, but they returned to obedience. And they abided in God's grace, and they walked with Him. You know, the wonderful truth of grace is that it is active and very available in both our obedience, <laughs> but also in our disobedience. And so, Father Lord, we just place ourselves in the